0: Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collisdale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in scripture, to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Uh, I'm so glad that you are here with us. Thank you so much, Kelly, for that, uh, that musical selection. And I learned just before the service that kelly 's parents and myself are friends, the Miller family up in Michigan. so if by chance they are watching just to keep track of what your daughter 's doing, we are so glad that she is right here at home with us we 'll take good care of her and welcome to you as well it 's good to good to know you might be there watching from michigan we 're going to be continuing our sermon series, so what, as we do this morning, we brought our uh, our adoration service in from the park and uh, while I do not presume that God controls the weather just to please me, it, it does not escape my notice that the first Sabbath that we couldn't have outdoor services at that time, we were already scheduling to come inside, and, and uh, God is good. We are so blessed to be able to do so. I thank you also. Uh, for going through the little challenges, possibly even some frustrations to make it so that we can worship here together. As you look around you notice we're wearing masks and we're asking that you keep them on through the course of the service. Uh, as we do so, so that we can do this safely, protecting one another. And so, if by chance you've taken that off, and it was probably a misunderstanding, we are committing to one another by wearing those masks through the course of our service today. I also just want to let you know, because some of our family members here would know these names, uh, there are two families that I'd like for us to continue to think about in prayer, if you've been following their stories at all. Uh, The first is the family of Alan Simons, who passed away this past week. And so that is a note for us to continue watching and supporting and praying for that family as they um, anticipate a funeral service coming up probably at the end of this weekend. And then there's also Dr. Alberto Dos Santos, who is a loved one of our family as well. And I just wanted to make known to you that they passed This past week, and we can be praying for them. So what? Not with regard to those items, (laughs) but so what? That's our sermon series as we kind of pour our way through this fall, and if you have been involved with us already, you know what we're talking about, but if you haven't, let me catch you up to speed. Here it is. This so what question comes from a world around us that wonders if following Jesus Christ has any thing to do at all with the real world. Okay, great nifty that you have a little kind of a following of people that gather together. That's wonderful. You even put all kinds of money potentially into a, a Christian education and all of that. That's great if it makes you feel good. But really, truly, I mean really, so what? Does it have anything to do with the difficulties of the day? It seems like just a nice little ornament on your Christmas tree of life. So what? Does this make any difference to how you really live or how you really experience the world and in the midst maybe especially of all that's going on ranging from hurricanes to fires to political unrest to social difficulties to a pandemic, all of these things. I'm here to tell you as we have dug our way through Galatians chapter 5, the so what question, oh, more and more and more what we're discovering is that a life with Jesus, if truly engaged upon with the presence of the Holy Spirit, it's an answer to the outcry of the human spirit amidst all the challenge that is going on. And today we are at the subject of goodness, I will tell you that as I dug into it, or prior to digging in, I found myself not really looking forward to this one, because it seems so bland, goodness. Goodness, you might even use that, for goodness sakes, you might even use that phrase, some, some version of goodness, it's a throwaway word, it's, it's, it's not bad, that's what it is. Oh, there's so much more, so much more, as I've, uh, over the last number of hours, I've begun to really look forward to this moment as we turn our way to Galatians chapter five, reminding ourselves again of those 22nd and 23rd verses, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This Spirit that comes into our lives So what? I'll tell you so what. Goodness. And in the moments you've experienced it, from the inside or the out, oh my, what a difference it makes. I I, I do admit as well to this kind of interesting conversation from Jesus we're gonna find in Luke chapter six. It's a, it's a, a framing phrase that he will use. Jesus tells this kind of parabolic statement, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its fruit. And we've talked about this notion of fruit. Jesus talks about being connected to him. He is the vine. We are the branches and we bear fruit. This fruit of the spirit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. And then this, the good man, the good woman, brings good things out of the good. That's a lot of good in there. Out of the good stored up in his, stored up in her heart. The good comes up and out from the good stored in our hearts, and that storage of the heart is affected by the presence of the Spirit. So I'm just gonna invite you to bow your head again in prayer as we dig around in this subject, this particular fruit, goodness, and its impact on us and on the world in which we live. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for your presence in our lives. Oh my word, there is so much going on around us. For goodness sakes, it'd be awesome if you showed up. For goodness. Could it be that your plan to show up is through the goodness coming up out of our hearts, bathed in the presence of your spirit? Is it possible that your plan for this planet is a body alive with your goodness? Well, show us a little something, Lord, in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. And amen. I, uh, uh, those of you who are parents, you've said this before. To a child leaving a room now, be good. Dropping them off at the school, be be good, be good. Um, Any parents here get a little worried uh, when there is too much quiet in certain rooms of the house? Because that seems like maybe it might not be good. I'm envisioning that quite possibly a parent said be good somewhere near this young man. We'll see on the screen eventually. There it is, follow me. I I can play out the conversation that's going on there. That little boy, we'll call him Roger, and his dog, Hero, Roger's thinking, what, there's something dinner time? Hero started it, right? Good, how about these moments? I'm just working with green in my palette today. Um, So are we. What? We didn't do anything? Be good, for good sakes, be. Good, I wanna tell you, actually, Kelly, it's not a relative of yours that I'm aware of, but I wanna tell you about Laurel Miller, Laurel Miller. But as I tell you about Laurel Miller, let me ask you this, what does it take to be a good driver, would you say? What does it take, so first of all, hey, look, 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 if, you, if you've got a, a child now is going on into driving and gonna get their license and all that, okay, first of all, do not speed. Do not speed. Uh, Another one, don't don't be swerving. That's gonna be a problem. Don't change lanes without signaling. Don't drive under the influence makes for a better driver. Don't text while driving. Uh, Don't text while driving. We'll say that twice. Under this definition, Laurel Miller was an excellent driver. Laurel Miller was my grandfather. Laurel married to Evelyn Miller, neither one of whom ever had a driver's license. Uh, I'm not aware of his ever having driven. He did not speed. Nor did he swerve. Nor did he ever change lanes without using a turn signal. Nor did, nor, nor. If we define goodness simply by the absence of bad, it is a nothing. Because he's not a driver at all. Now, as we consider this thing called goodness, we're reminded of some challenging pieces. I want to direct your attention to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus on a mountainside is teaching about his kingdom and his way. And we hit this spot around the 21st verse where he goes into these little couplets where he says, he says something like this, you've heard it said, but I say, you've heard it said, but I say, and if you take the Ten Commandments, an awful lot of them are telling you things to not do, and Jesus says, you, if you leave it there, you're not really living into this character of God displayed in these Ten Commandments, for in that 21st verse, he will say, you have heard it said long ago, do not murder, but I say. And you know part of it, he'll say, but I say don't hate. I say don't be angry. I say don't call somebody else an apostate. I say more than just this don't kill, don't murder. But he goes on, and he says, look, you might be on your way to this beautiful, wonderful moment of giving a gift, a sacrifice, a financial contribution at the temple, But if there is something between you and someone else, I say stop. Just stop in your tracks. Turn around. You may be on your way on the 10th of October to worship in a sanctuary here together with these fine folks. But if there is something between you and another person, I'm saying, you've heard it said, don't kill. I say, don't go to church without fixing that situation. It is an active calling, this character of Christ. I tell you, go and be reconciled. You've heard it said, don't do this bad thing to them. I say, go and do a good thing. Be good. Far more. This goodness, far more than the simple absence of badness. In the midst of it then, we have this kind of quizzical moment where a young ruler goes and asks Jesus a question. He phrases it this way in Luke chapter 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit the eternal life? Do you remember what he said first? I mean, he's going to talk about commandments and so on. But do you remember what he first says? He says, why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. I would suggest to you that Jesus is pointing out that if there is goodness in him, he is connected, he is attached to the Creator God, for that is the only place goodness can come from. You remember in our digging around in Galatians chapter 5, if you jump backwards and don't just start at the 22nd verse, you're going to find Paul saying, hey, look, let me tell you about the natural creations of us. We are crayon children on the walls. We are are markers on heroes' back. We are a face filled with paint that's just all over the place and smudged on the bathroom tile walls. We can't create the goodness. If we are going to have goodness in our lives, it's gonna be because we are we're connected to the creator God through the Holy Spirit's presence and he builds up and brings up fruit that comes from the heart. So that a good man, a good woman, the good comes out of the good built in the heart by the Holy Spirit in this connection. So I don't believe Jesus is trying to say he's bad. He's trying to point out you are... You're connecting me to the creator God and saying this at all. Remember, the good man brings good things out of the goodness of their heart. So I'd like to go to a book. It's a short book. We're gonna deal with most of the book. It's that kind of short. It's one you know about. It's one we talk about every once in a while. You may not have studied it into too deeply. It's a book all about what goodness looks like in a human being who submitted themselves to the cause and calling of God. I think it's a fascinating one because it tells us something about this otherwise way too bland word. That's squishy and difficult to get our hands around. What does it mean that God would raise up goodness out of our hearts? What does that look like? And so we're gonna go to this book, the little book of Ruth little backstory on this on this book of Ruth it's not called the book of Naomi but it could have been Naomi is married to a man named Elimelech Elimelech and Naomi they are from Bethlehem a significant town in Israel but they move to Moab they have sons Malon and Kilion those sons marry Two women named Orpah and Ruth. Along the way, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies, which is tragic and is difficult, and anybody who has lost a soulmate, you know that can't be put with ink on paper in a way that's understandable. But he has died. Thankfully, she has her children and their wives, family. Isn't it true? We can make it through so much more when you have family. 10 years go by and during this time famine begins to consume Moab and it is becoming harder to live and in that process, Malon and Kilion, they die too. So now Naomi has no one who came with her from Israel, it's There is famine. She is a woman. She is an outsider. She is a foreigner. She has these two daughters-in-law that are Moabite women, but they are now left to fend for themselves in a world that is not kind to widows in famines. And she thinks to herself, my only shot, my hope is I'll go back to where I came from. I'm going to go back to Israel Surely I have kin there because the plan of God, by the way, the plan of God is that God's people take care of people. All that it would be said for anybody who's struggling in our communities, anybody associated with our families, anybody who's ever been here before, if I could just get back there, I'd be cared for my needs, would, my wounds would be salved. My, my loneliness could be healed. My hungers could be quenched. I would find community. I'd find belonging. I, would find, I could plug in. I, I could make it. If I could just get back there, no matter how desperate it is, if I could just get back there, I could make it. Oh, woe to us if, in fact, it is at a, on occasion the opposite. We should be on our knees pleading for forgiveness if the language of anyone who has been among us would be to say, if I'm going to live, I need to leave that Place. I I had an easy enough time believing in my relationship with Jesus Christ until I was with those people. No, the plan of God is that where His people are, there is life. And she says, Ruth uh, or Naomi does. If I could only get back there, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Her two. Who two her two daughters-in-law, I'm guessing, selected by her sons because of the incredible character that they displayed. They're saying, we're going with you. No, 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 you stay here. These are your people. You're going to go there. And maybe Naomi knows what it will be like for these foreigners to come into her hometown. She, they may not be as well accepted as she was in Moab. Maybe she will be fed and maybe she will be taken care of, but they don't look like her. They don't have the accent that she does. They don't have the history in this place. And nobody feels a blood obligation to them. Maybe for some of those reasons, Naomi says, no, 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 you stay here, you stay here, and weeping on the road, Orpah turns and goes back into the hometown from where she came, but Ruth, you know it, Ruth will not leave her. Instead, she will say, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God, where you die, I will die. This is uncommon. This sentiment lived out through the hands and feet. And what we know is that as Naomi arrives back in Bethlehem, people begin to hear her story, and it's def- desperate, and it's difficult, and she is a woman now without family who is attended to only by this, this outsider, Ruth. Ruth. The story gets told from household to household to household who that is, what it is that's going on. You remember Elimelech. You know his family. In fact, you know some of his relatives right down the road. And that's Ruth. That was was her son's wife. She didn't give him a child yet, so there is no heir to the family. And this introduces some issues, this introduces problems. She is an outcast, Ruth is, and so is Naomi. So that Naomi will say, when she gets back into town and people go, oh this is Naomi, you remember Naomi. and She says, no, don't call me that anymore. That's not a suitable name for what my life has become. You can call me Mara, which means bitterness. My life is filled with bitterness. I'm not sure how fun it was to be around Naomi, but Ruth has decided this is her calling in life. And if you want to see goodness personified, take a good, solid drink in the view of who Ruth is. Because it's not going to be her background and her culture that causes her to go to Bethlehem. It's going to be something that's happened in relationship with this family and an understanding of this Hebrew God that she has claimed for herself. For I will transplant, I will go to a place where they may never accept me and I will accept them. I will go and take care of you. Bitter, you. I will go and turn my back on everything I've understood to serve you. I'm putting my lot in with you and with your God. And it's clear, by the way, that she understands this God a little bit because she in the second chapter is going to set out to try to deal with their hunger, their poverty. Now get a load of this for Ruth as she steps into this scenario. She's, claiming, she's, she's laying claim to some things that are a little bit of a stretch. Firstly, She is an outsider, she is a foreigner, she's of a different race, she's a Moabite woman and there are some pretty strong feelings about people of other races in in Israel, let's just be honest. She's also a woman. She is a woman to whom things have happened in the losses in her life that many would say must be a sign that God has left you. And she's deeply impoverished also a sign of the lack of God's presence as seen as such, but she has been listening, she has been reading, she has been studying, she knows the Hebrew God, and that in Leviticus chapter 23, this Hebrew God tells the people, when you reap the harvest of your lands, when you who are farmers, when you who are business folks, when you are reaping your lands, don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. Leave them for the poor. and some translations, will say stranger. That Hebrew word stranger there actually is designated for people who have had to leave their home country because of famine or war. We today use the word refugee. So leave, oh, think about this. Christian, live your life so that there are leftovers that surround you. So that people in need around you, if they could just get near you, there's leftover that you have not scooped up, carved up, stuck in a savings account, or figured out how to harbor away, but you've purposely left it available? Do you have time at the fringes and the edges? Do you have energy at the outskirts of your obligations? Do you have a dollar that isn't accounted for or necessary? Leviticus calls those who are followers of God to live their lives such that people in need, people who are poor or people who are not from here and feel disconnected and alone, if they could just get near me they would find the healing property of goodness that comes up and out of the heart. Ruth Knows this she's been paying attention. She's bought all in so she says to Naomi. Here's what I'm gonna do I'm gonna go out into the fields I'm gonna look for some of these business folks who have farms and so on and I'm this is what we're gonna do We're gonna lay claim to the promises of God. Surely these are God's people. I wonder if she went places and there was none If wandering through some of the villages and towns and and those who were because it was the time for the barley harvest if they all she found were people who were being way more frugal than that, making sure there was no waste, nothing at the edge, edges, nothing for riffraff to collect around. Because that's the problem. Have you noticed it? I, I remember this vividly going to India. We were told very clearly, do not, do not give anything to the beggars because what will happen is they will start to collect. And do I live my life as a Christian hoping not to collect needy people around me? I don't know, Pastor Sherry, about you, but I have this thing that happens. I can sometimes hear it in the tone of voice as somebody contacts me, talks to me. This is going to take a while. Do I have it to give? And boy, if I do, then here comes the next one. Goodness. Goodness. Often, in Scripture, there's a couplet of words, goodness and mercy, jammed together. She knows, Ruth does, that this is supposed to be happening, and so she makes her way and finds a field. I'm going to take you to this uh, chapter 2, verse 3. It says, as it turned out, She was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it it turned out, she went to a person who is in the same family as her mother-in-law, who should see her as family too, by the way, but there's just enough disconnection. She's Moabite, she didn't have a child yet. She's an in-law. By the way, that phrase in Hebrew could also be translated, as luck would have it. Have you noticed that there's a thing, a spiritual principle of as luck would have it? As it turns out, the day we move inside, it rains for the first time all summer long. As it turns out, in the moment of your great need, you happen to bump into that person who is a prayer warrior. As it turns out, she ends up in the field of Boaz. And I wonder how many more, as it turns out, God wishes were available to him in us. That we would have goodness welling up in our heart that could not help but flood out. Well, as we read this little passage, here's what goes on. She's, as it turns out, she ends up at this particular place. She's now gleaning at the edges and Boaz is a godly man. So he's, they have this practice. They allow the off cuts, the leftovers to be there for somebody in need. And as Boaz arrives, he greets his harvesters. There's a cordial relationship. It sounds like a good workspace, potentially. And Boaz, this business leader, asks the overseers, well, who is this woman? And they tell him she is a foreigner. She's from outside. She's a Moabite. She, and she came back from, from Moab with Naomi. Surely Boaz has been hearing the stories of what happened to Naomi and her desire. Just call me bitter at this point. I mean, that's where it is. She came and she's laying claim to this right to glean from our field. And so in verse eight, so Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Uh, By the way, I'm not always so certain I'm willing to be that cordial (laughs) with people who are clearly in need. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay right here with the women who work for me. I'm gonna give instructions to make sure they protect you. You're gonna read in a little further if you do so. that that it's dangerous to be doing what she's doing. It puts you out at work in a time where you may have to walk back at night and you're clearly somebody who has no one to look out for you, so no one's going to worry about it if you get accosted or you get abused somewhere along the roadway. You are out. And he says, no, no, protect her, protect her. But isn't it fascinating? He says, don't go and glean in another field. Even though they are just as responsible for your well-being as I am, I've got this. And it's the first thing I want to just point out from this passage that we can find on the subject of goodness. Goodness volunteers to meet the needs. Goodness notices the needs and says, hey, can I? Can I do that? What a wonderful moment when you have some task at home and you have somebody who says, can I please? I mean, seriously, I've been, I feel like I'm always last in line to clean the toilet. And Boaz says, go nowhere else. Can you imagine it? If that were the collective ethos of this church family, look, you've found your way here because of your pain. I just want to say to you, go nowhere else. We will care for you. Goodness. Seize the need. Have you, like me, ever had that moment where you see need walking toward you? And you tried to make sure you didn't get Eye contact, because that's the way it went. once there's eye contact. Now it's public knowledge that you saw the need. Goodness has eyes wide open to see the need and raises the hand and says, "Yeah, you could go all over the place. There could be other people who are really even obligated to help you, but you need go nowhere else but here." Well. <clears throat> The story continues and I think it's some pretty fascinating and interesting stuff we run into. Boaz, this man who seems filled with goodness. In the 10th verse it goes on. She bows her face to the ground and she says, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you would notice me a foreigner? I'm not one of you. I look different, I sound different, and I'm a woman and there are so many reasons why I could seem an outcast to you. What is it that's going on? Boaz replies, I've been told all about you. I understand what you've been through. And then he says in verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded. He's talking about her caring for Naomi. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Time out, do you get this? Do you hear it? Boaz there, as she is scooping up the offcuts of barley from his field that his people paid for, that he planted, he, 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 me, I, says, may the Lord bless you under whose wings you have come for protection. That's the second huge point on goodness. Goodness credits the true source. Goodness happens without a desire to somehow get on the donor list. Goodness isn't mid-selfie with the help, but understands I have no goodness in me outside of connection to the God who changes and moves my heart so that if you experience any goodness from me, we can skip the middleman. I'm the delivery truck for goodness. May... The Lord bless you. It's the Lord who's blessing you right now. I could take some credit. It's the Lord who's blessing you right now. And it's his wings under which you have come to take refuge. Fascinating. Story goes on verse 14 through 16. Mealtime comes and she's been out working. I don't know if this is even the same day. Boaz says to her, hey, come over, come over. Have some bread, dip it in the wine vinegar. She sits down. She has roasted grain, not just the raw grain that has to be dealt with and cooked and everything done to. No, no, no. He's now moved past his obligation to a heart filled with generosity. I struggle. I think sometimes I've witnessed we struggle actually to just live up to the obligation of God's expectation that we not turn away so quickly to somebody in need. He goes in need. He goes even further. It's not about the obligation. He has a heart filled with goodness that tumbles out in generosity, so he will say again, be careful on the way home tonight. And by the way, I've, I've made sure that our workers know to protect you and keep you safe. And he tells them, look, hey, every once in a while, just grab some of the barley in one of the sheath and just, just kind of put it down there. <laughs> Frankly, if she's willing, and she might not be willing because she is, seems like a very um, principle-driven woman and may not feel like it's even something she has a right to, but welcome her all the way into the field to just harvest straight from there. Don't even worry about her taking from the offcuts, we will take care of her. We're not going to insist that you just stay with the leftovers. As you know, by the end of this whole story, Ruth and Boaz end up married, and there's this kind of interesting thing that happens in the third and the fourth chapter as Naomi says to her, what I want you to do is what you ought to do, and maybe she's caught the look in the eye of Boaz. Maybe, in fact, he's attracted to her. And by the way, she could be beautiful. She's younger than Boaz, most scholars believe. We don't know that, but what we do know is she has an amazing personality and character. That he is definitely impressed with the principles that guide her life. And in essence what Naomi says to her you should make known to him he is in fact in the line where there is this other truth you you should make known to him that you would be alright with getting married to him so in the third and the fourth chapters there's this scenario that occurs uh, Boaz is out by one of the outbuildings of his field and it's time to go to sleep and he's possibly been working extra hard in the barley harvest and he lies down and then about this time she comes in and lies at his feet you know the story there are all kinds of complexities to what is going on here but know this in the middle of the night he is well fed he is drunk from the wine he is lying there in this moment she is wildly vulnerable There is no one who would stand up for her if in fact things went sideways in this moment. So she has had to get a sense of what this man's character is like to feel any kind of trust to be willing to do this to say, you are, and the wording we're gonna look at in a little better light in just a minute, you are, and some versions will say, a kinsman redeemer. Others will say a guardian redeemer. This is a designation for a person in a line of descendants who has a familial connection. And you are one of those, for me, you could redeem my life in a society where a woman in a foreign country, impoverished and widowed, has no future. You could change everything, and I'm, I-, I want you to know I'm, I'm interested in that. By the end of the story, you're going to know he's interested too. But in that moment where he could take a shortcut... He demonstrates another principle. Goodness acts righteously, especially when there's a shortcut. It's it's in, it's in contrast to the evil that is done so many places so easily, so readily. All around us that this righteousness of goodness shows up because two ways one he's not going to do anything to take advantage of her he's also not going to kick her out and say look you misunderstand the situation here he's gonna say look you, you can't go back until morning but because it's dangerous so you just sleep righteousness point number two But you need to know there is a kinsman redeemer, there is a guardian redeemer who is ahead of me in this line of who could get to take care of you. Isn't that a fascinating thing? (laughs) There's somebody ahead of me in line for who gets to give you a ride home, for who gets to take care of the leaves in your yard. There's somebody ahead of me in line in terms of the lineage for who gets to spend money for your education. There's somebody, but this is what Boaz is saying, somebody, I'm interested in this, but there's somebody who is ahead of me in line, and so the next day he calls 10 elders together, he meets with this kinsman redeemer, the person who has a closer relative connection to Elimelech. And he says, hey, look, now by the way, I, I wanna make sure you understand some of what kinsmen, there are three different types of kinsman, redeemer, guardian redeemer that come out of Leviticus chapter 25. The first is a person might have had to sell their fields to be able to survive and then they're a loss to the family. A kinsman redeemer might be a redeemer of property where he would buy that property back and return it to the family so they have land. This we know by the story is happening or has happened. Naomi has lost the lands of Elimelech. Another form is the redeemer of the slave. In that day and age at times slavery would occur when a person can't pay their debts and there's nowhere else to to get what they need to survive, except to borrow on it and be a slave until they can repay it. And so often it's worked into a loop that makes it impossible to ever repay. And so a kinsman redeemer might step up and say, I'm purchasing their debt and I'm wiping it out and you are now free. By the way, is there some space, some property in your life that needs redemption? Some corner of your thought world, some behavior that you need the blessing of a redeemer? Is there anyone here who is stuck in enslavement of any sort, a habitual, recurring sin problem in their life, and you need a redeemer to start things over somehow? So it's all pointing to this Jesus of the cross. Well, there's a final kinsman redeemer, and that's in a situation in which a person now has, their line is cut off. There is no one to carry on essentially the family name any longer because there are no offspring. And so Naomi, she has no offspring because her two sons died. Ruth, who is now kind of grafted into her family, she has no offspring either. She's stuck. So As she lies there on the ground, wondering what will happen the night before, Boaz is telling her, I am willing to redeem your family's lands. I am willing to redeem you out of poverty. I am willing to redeem your future. Oh my goodness, if you're not hearing Jesus, 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 who redeems us from our past, from our debts, from the actions we stumble in today, and from our future that would otherwise be absolute loss well, he meets with the person who's ahead of him in line and he says, hey, would you be willing, are you, uh, the, the, the kinsman redeemer, there's some property that has been lost, would you be willing to purchase it and, and, to, and, and this kind of arrangement, sometimes the kinsman redeemer would purchase it, give the money, but then maintain the lands. And you can kind of get that texture of what's happening in the fourth chapter of this being the strategy, well, yes, I'd be quite happy to be the kinsman redeemer of that those lands, that would be great. And Boaz says, keep in mind, a part of that commitment is to take on Ruth as your wife. Huh. And at that point, the kinsman redeemer further in line says, yeah, actually, that would kind of, it would, t- it would tinker with, the, you know, the, just the whole, the problem would be that our inheritances would get a little bit scrambled in that. i tell you what, why don't you? And so Boaz redeems the life of ruth and in doing so redeems the life of naomi and by the end of this passage you will read the fourth chapter the 16th verse then naomi had this child or took this child in her arms what child is it it's now the son of ruth and boaz and they named him obed who's the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, who in Matthew chapter one is the father of, who is the father of, who is the father of, until you hit who was the father of Jacob, who was the father of Joseph, who married a little girl turned young woman, who had Jesus. I want to suggest to you that there is a final principle in this subject of goodness, and that is that the goodness that wells up from our hearts when the Spirit comes into us, this multiplies in ways we cannot fathom or imagine as Ruth is trying to figure out how to live through the day God is planning how to save the world. so that the goodness of a Ruth who would follow Naomi, the goodness of a Boaz who would redeem her life, God is using it to get to the cross. And could it be that he is welling up goodness in you through the fruit of the Spirit and the connection with the vine because he is waiting to multiply that goodness to salvation, the salvation of the cross for the world? Oh my goodness. So what? So so what? If you in this moment cannot see that we are spinning on a planet destined for destruction, I wonder what you're looking at. And amidst all of the chaos and the difficulty and the frustration and the pain and the masks, Jesus says, I am saving you. I am saving this world and my great grand plan for this salvation includes that you would have fruit in your life, that you would connect to me and that you would live out what it is to be good in a world bathed in sorrow. Wrestling for a reason to even exist. These fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, goodness, for goodness sake. Jesus wants to save father bless us in this day this Sabbath day as we have worshiped we can turn very inside and inwardly and think about what's good for us but as we understand this fruit of spirit and your presence in our life it is about our hearts being turned out to what's good for the world around us. How could we sacrifice in such a way that would lead someone to the cross? Oh, Father, if you would use something growing up in our hearts to save someone, to meet the needs of someone, may we be the kind of individuals and family that others would begin to recognize. If I could just get there, there is such goodness. It's like, it's like being covered by the wings of a mother hen. It's safe, it's secure, it's nourishing. It's adoptive, and it would even empower me to find purpose in my own life in this world so in need of a crucified Jesus. Thank you thank you lord that you invite us that deeply into what you're doing may you walk with us from this place our hearts lifted with the goodness you have given to us inspired with the presence of the spirit that we would see the needs of the world around us and that we would raise our hands high that we would say look let's move this past obligation all the way to generosity and we will give you the credit we will give you the credit lord god Multiply this goodness through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.